All right, so we are in the Gospel of Matthew two weeks ago. Actually, last, was it last week? Well, the week, the, the, yeah, two weeks ago. Sorry, I'm confused. Two weeks ago, we started the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor Mitch took us through chapter one. And then last week, we just talked about something to sort of uh, stimulate us for the new year and to call us to just sort of refocusing and getting reset uh, for the new year. And today we continue with Matthew chapter two. Uh, when we uh, looked at this two weeks ago, Pastor Mitch had taken us through sort of a, a brief introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. I uh, wanted to give you a little bit more of an overview this morning just to sort of reinforce that as we jump into chapter 2. So let's pray. We'll go through this overview, then we'll jump into the passage. So Lord, thank you this morning for your goodness, for your grace to us, and we ask you to bless us as we study your word to enlighten us. And to encourage us, Lord, we need encouragement. Every single day we need encouragement. Lord, I was thinking of the words of the psalmist this week where he said, I live in a dry and weary land where there is no water. But Lord, you satiate our thirst. You are the bread of life. And so we come to you this morning to be filled. In Jesus' name, amen. So most of you hopefully have here in the room, you've uh, received a piece of paper uh, that's just a little brief overview of the four Gospels. Uh, for those of you online, if you'd like a copy, we'll be happy to send it out to you. So um, this is, again, just a little overview, a comparison of the four Gospels. As you look across the top there, you'll see the names of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you will see there the approximate dates of when we believe they were written. And it just so happens that they are listed in the order that they were written, which is unusual because the New Testament nor the Bible is, is not listed chronologically as we have grouped the books. They're grouped by type of literature for the most part. So we can see Matthew was completed about A.D. 45 to 50. The significance of these dates, just think about the fact that Jesus was crucified somewhere around A.D. Uh, 32 to 34, depending on how you reckon the time. So we're, you know, uh, 15 or, or so years after the resurrection of Jesus, as these gospels are being compiled and then being put out there for the churches that have been formed by the Holy Spirit to actually have the words of Jesus. So for those first 15 or 20 years of the church, the church didn't have a New Testament and they only had pieces of it from there to the end of the first century up to about 90 AD. And even then, the, the pieces of the, the New Testament that we know as the 27 books weren't all pulled together until much, much later, around 1500. Um, so this gives us sort of an appreciation for how the Holy Spirit brought the Word of God together. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call synoptic, meaning they cover much of the same material from slightly different perspectives, but there's a huge overlap in the material that they cover. John is non-synoptic, meaning it stands alone. There are some things in John's gospel that is uh, repeated or covered in other gospels and vice versa, but for the most part, you'll see as we go through this, they are separate and distinct. So uh, we also referred last week to this verse from Ezekiel chapter 1, and there's a number of things, places we could go in the Old Testament that sort of gives us a picture of the New Testament in the Old. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, you see this verse that says, as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face, and the four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left, and the face of an eagle. So there, there were four faces, and we see those four faces that were described by the prophet Ezekiel here in 
the Gospels because each of the Gospels have sort of a theme. We see the lion of the tribe of Judah in Matthew. We see ox, the symbol of, a ser- of service in Mark because Mark was looking at Jesus as servant. Uh, we see in Luke the human face because Luke portrays Jesus as a man. He gives us the humanness of Jesus. And John, eagle, meaning the divinity of God, the divinity of Jesus, Jesus as the God-man. And uh, Matthew, we know, was a Jew and an apostle. He was a disciple, one of the original disciples with Jesus. Mark, we know, was actually the cousin of Barnabas. We read about him in uh, uh, Acts chapter 13 as he came on the scene, as uh, Paul and Barnabas went out, and they initially took John Mark with them. This is the same Mark. John Mark is the Mark who wrote the gospel. Uh, He was a Roman, not a Jew, and he took dictation from Peter, and this was uh, Peter's gospel, most likely, as we understand it. Luke was a Gentile. He was a doctor, a medical doctor, and he was also a historian. So as Luke recorded the words there in the gospel of Luke, as well as in the book of Acts, uh, he covers it from sort of his perspective. And uh, John was a Jew and an apostle, and of course, he was a fisherman, Matthew was sort of a, a clean Jew, if you will. He was a tax collector, and he was, you know, living in Jerusalem. And John was, um, you know, a fisherman. He was a common man. And so people looked down upon him, and then the other fishermen whom Jesus took into his group of disciples. Uh, John, we know as we read his gospel and his epistles, he was passionate for Jesus and passionate for, for the truth of God, for the truth of the gospel. Uh, Matthew looks at Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Mark looks at Jesus as servant. And if you uh, will, you can go look at Isaiah 53 and read about the, the picture of the suffering servant that Isaiah portrayed there. And you see that picture of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Luke, again, the humanity of Jesus. He uses the phrase son of man quite frequently. And he looks at Jesus as the perfect man. Jesus is our example. And John looks at Jesus as God incarnate, both fully God and fully man, and he focuses heavily on the deity of Jesus Christ. If we look at it from the point of view of the different offerings in the book of Leviticus, uh, we can see that Matthew would be looking at it as the trespass offering. Uh, Mark would be looking at it from the point of view of the sin offering, Luke the peace offering, and John the burnt offering. You might say, how do you see all that? Just read the Gospels over and over and over, and these themes begin to sort of emerge. And then some other sort of random thoughts down below. Uh, Matthew uh, covers the genealogy from the point of view of a royal bloodline, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, Matthew, being a tax collector, was more like a court stenographer. So he was very exacting in the way he took notes about the life of Jesus. Uh, He's very legal-like. And he covers the discourses, the words of Jesus, more than the other gospel writers did. So that's one of the reasons why we have four gospels. Uh, Each uh, writer had sort of a different and a unique point of view. So, you know, think of it this way. As we sit in this room today or listen online, probably some of us are good note takers and some aren't, right? Matthew was a good note taker. So we thank God for that. Uh, Mark... um, Again, covering Jesus as a servant. You see, servants don't need a lineage. They only need references. They just need a resume. They just need to know, hey, do you know how to shovel? Yes. Do you know how to you know, put hay in the barn? Yes. Uh, that's good. 
if you're coming from a royal bloodline, from a Jewish perspective, you need to document the genealogy. You need to document the credentials that qualify you to be the king of the Jews. From the point of view of being a servant, really not much is necessary. Interestingly, Mark being a Roman and the, the gospel of Mark really being written more to the Gentile and to the Roman in particular is a very fast-paced, action-packed gospel. In fact, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. We know Matthew has 28 chapters, Mark has 16, Luke has 24, John has 21. Hopefully I got that right. And so it's a fast-paced, quick-moving for the Roman mind. So if you're an ADD person, the Gospel of Mark is for you. Uh, More miracles are recorded in Mark than any, any other Gospel, whereas Matthew recorded all the discourses of Jesus. So you can begin to see how the Gospels work together. Uh, the word and is used 914 times in the Gospel of Mark. Why does that matter? Because he just kept going and, 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 and it's denoting the action behind the Gospel. 41 times in the Gospel of Mark, he uses the term immediately, or if you're reading the Old King James, straight away. So it's like, and immediately this, and immediately that, and immediately that, and that's one of the trademarks of the action-packed point of view of Mark. And then uh, you can see some of the other things he did there. And you sort of get the picture as you look at the bottom there that God is active, God is reaching out, God is taking the initiative. So that's the Gospel of Mark. Luke, um, Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. He looks at the genealogy uh, back to Adam, to, to the man, Adam. And in fact, when we look at the book of Romans chapter 5, in the second half of Romans 5, Paul looks at the one man, Adam, and the one man, Jesus. And you could take that and lay it beside uh, the Gospel of Luke, and Luke focuses on the relationship between Jesus and Adam and Jesus as a man. And he traces the uh, genealogy through Mary's bloodline in Luke and in Matthew's, bloodline, Matthew's genealogy through the bloodline of Joseph, who was uh, not his earthly father, but his, um, well, he was his earthly father, but he was not his blood father, he was his adoptive father. And then uh, he focuses on the compassion of Jesus, the tenderness of Jesus, so we much, see much more of the humanity. And if you're uh, a person who's relational, you know, the, the gospel of Luke is for you because you want to see those relationships and um, the compassion, the tenderness, who he was, how he acted, how he felt. You know, it's in Luke's gospel where we find that uh, leading up to the day of the triumphal entry, how Jesus wept, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks underneath her wings. You see that picture only in the Gospel of Luke. And then John's Gospel, the deity, the lordship of Christ, truth, truth was everything. John's writing at the end of the first century, 60 years have passed since the resurrection of Jesus. Not only has the church formed, but the church is uh, getting taken off course. There are false teachers coming in. There's false doctrines coming in. And John is writing to refute and to debunk all of those false doctrines and false teachers. And he's saying, look, we have handled with our hands, seen with our eyes, you know, we've touched. We know who Jesus was. We are eyewitnesses of these things. And John emphasizes the eyewitness accounts more than any of the other gospel writers. John also covers the sevens, the seven wonders, the seven miracles, the seven claims of I am that Jesus makes, which the I am's again point back to the person of God himself. 
So just a little quick overview for you. I hope that's helpful for you as we go through um, the Gospel of Matthew. You guys can have the control back now. Thank you very much. And we will get out of that. So turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 2 as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And we pick it up in chapter 2, which is a, a place where we often look at it and we think of the Christmas story. But since we've covered Christmas already, we're going to consider it from a slightly different perspective. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures and presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The serious student of the Gospels will find that each time he or she returns to the Gospels that Christ will be a little bit bigger. Something like Lucy's experience in the Chronicles of Narnia with the lion Aslan, who was the Christ symbol in, in that story. And as she gazed into his large, wise face, why, uh, Aslan said, welcome, child. And Lucy said, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Lucy said, not because you are? And Aslan said, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And that's how it is as we grow in Christ. That's how it is. Every time we come back and, you know, we're at a new year, okay, so we start reading through the Bible again. Yeah, we're like, yeah, but it didn't make sense to me last time. Well, it'll make a little more sense this time. Keep reading. Keep pursuing. And as we grow, just as a little child, just as in the case of Lucy before Aslan, every time she came to him to see him, he seemed a little different to her. He seemed bigger. If the Bible were to uh, jump from Malachi straight into Mark or Acts or Romans, the reader would be bewildered because Matthew's gospel really is the bridge that leads us out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Why is that? 
because the Old Testament is a distinctly Jewish book, and Matthew being the first gospel in the Old Testament is a distinctly Jewish book. And so as we come out of the 400 years of silence from Malachi, that intertestamental time between when Malachi was completed and when Matthew was written, we find that Matthew bridges it almost seamlessly because Matthew writes the gospel from the point of view of a Jew. Matthew recorded at least 20 specific miracles and six major messages. He records for us the Sermon on the Mount, not found anywhere else. He records for us the charge that Jesus gave to his apostles in chapter 10. He records for us the parables of the kingdom starting in chapter 13. He gives us a lesson on forgiveness, a big one in Matthew chapter 18, one that we probably all need to read on a regular basis. He gives the denunciation to the Pharisees in chapter 23, what we know as the woes to the Pharisees, thus denouncing organized religion that is devoid of Christ. In chapters 24 and 25, he gives us these amazing prophetic discourses on the Mount of Olives. We call it the Olivet Discourse. And at least 60% of this book, the Gospel of Matthew, focuses on the teachings of Jesus. Another interesting thing about the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew is the only gospel writer to use the word church. No other gospel writer uses that word, and so we will cover that when we get there in chapter 16. As we go through this passage today, again, a familiar passage, the Christmas story, uh, we'll, we'll cover some of that, but what stood out to me as I was reading through this and preparing was that seven times in this chapter, the leading of God was emphasized and how God worked through what happened in the events surrounding the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. In, in verse 2, we find that God led and directed uh, the Magi, those kings, by a star, by the light of a star. Number 2, in verses 5 and 6, we find that he directed or led them by the scriptures, by the prophets, the prophetic uh, Old Testament. In verse 9, number 3, he directed or led them again by the star. So he led them by the star to Jerusalem, and then he led them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And in verse 12, we find that the Lord directed and led uh, by a dream. And then in uh, verse 13, again, he directed and led by an angel of the Lord in a dream. In number 6 here, verse 19, he directed and led an angel by an angel of the Lord in a dream again, as he spoke once to the uh, Magi and then once to Joseph. And then number seven, he led uh, through a dream again as he now directed Joseph at the uh, right time to then um, to go from Judea to, um, to Egypt, or excuse me, from uh, the region he was going back to settle um, in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem area, he directed him more up to Galilee. So as we look at this this morning, I want us to see those seven times that the Lord spoke and directed and the uniqueness with which the Lord used to guide people because certainly one of the questions we all have on a regular basis is, how do I know God's will for my life? How do I know God's directing me in a particular way? And we have some extraordinary ways that God spoke and directed people today in this passage. So in verse one, after Jesus was born, 
in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. These are the men we know as the Magi. And we know very little about these men. These are a group of men who were scholars who studied the stars. Some have called them astrologers. Some have called them astronomers. And God gave them a special sign. He gave them the sign of a star. In the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So as they come to Jerusalem, Herod was the, the ruler at that time, and we're not going to go over it today, but there were four Herods specifically in this lineage of Herod. This was the man known as Herod the Great, and he was called king by the Roman Senate because of the influence of Mark Antony. Herod was a cruel and crafty man who permitted no one, not even his own family, to interfere with his rule and he or prevent the satisfying of his evil desires. He was a very vain and self-centered man. He was a ruthless murderer. He had his own wife and her two brothers killed because he suspected them of treason. He was married at least nine times in order to fulfill his lusts and to strengthen his political ties. It's no surprise that Herod tried to kill Jesus for Herod alone wanted to bear the title King of the Jews. But there was another reason. Herod was not a full-blooded Jew. He was actually an Idumean, a descendant of Esau. This is a picture of the old struggle between Esau and Jacob that began even before the boys were born, when they were struggling in the womb. And this is the spiritual versus the carnal, the godly versus the worldly. So Herod, an evil man. This was the man who was the ruler of that day. This was the world Jesus was born into. The world of an evil ruler who was ruthless, who was a murderer and who would stop at nothing to maintain power. But as these magi, these astronomers or astrologers, are coming, they're coming because they are being led by a star. Now, these were people who, of course, were constantly looking to the heavens, looking to the heavens for signs and wonders. And now they began to see something, something unusual, the brightness of a star. And people have tried to explain this. Of course, you know, recently there was the occurrence where I think it was Jupiter and Saturn, was it? That was a line on our horizon. It was very, very bright. A lot of people took pictures of that. And some people have looked at that and said, well, perhaps it was that. Whatever it was, it was strange enough. Indeed, it was supernatural enough to gain their attention. And it was a sign from God because it led these men to the Lord Jesus. Now, remember in Luke's gospel, he gives us the account of those shepherds who were out in their field at night and the angel and the heavenly host spoke to them and said, there's born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And that was there at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus. And so those shepherds were led uh, by the, the Holy Spirit, by the proclamation of the angel to go find Jesus. Now we're probably some weeks or even months away from that event. And the star that God caused to appear now led a different group of people, these wise men, to come and to find the Lord Jesus. So he led them to find Jesus by the light of a star. You might say that's a pretty unusual way for God to lead somebody 
But you know, God being God can use whatever means he wants, correct? To speak to someone, to, to lead someone, to guide them. And so when they arrived, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him because they, they came and they, and they said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And Herod, of course, would be troubled by that. He's like, well, wait a minute, I'm the king of the Jews, but you're saying born? You mean there's a baby? There's somebody born to replace me? Now, of course, Herod, who knows how old he was, but, you know, this is a baby being born. We're, we're talking 20, 30 years in the future before someone would be qualified and able to take your place and to be so vain as to think that this baby was going to steal his throne. You know, he, he couldn't even think straight. He was blinded by his anger and his fear. And so when he had gathered, verse 4, all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. So what did he do? He called the chief priests and the scribes. He called the religious leaders together. And they said, well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so the next thing is, God, first he used a star to get these kings, the Magi, there to Jerusalem. Now, why did God bring them to Jerusalem and not all the way straight to the cradle of Jesus? And I submit to you it's because the path to Jesus was through Jerusalem. The path to Jesus was through the religious leaders, and it was through King Herod. And that God inevitably stirred this whole thing up by allowing the rulers to come there first, uh, rather the kings, and as they came, and uh, they stirred up Herod, and Herod went and inquired of the religious leaders, and the religious leaders opened the Bible, they opened the scriptures, and they said, well, it says here, he's supposed to be born there. Now, the interesting thing is that these religious leaders, these men who studied the word of God, were ignorant. They were blind to the fact that Jesus was born a mere five or six miles away from them in the city of Bethlehem, and that's where he was. And the scriptures, they're like, yeah, right here it says he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Now the stars are out. Something's going on in the heavens. For whatever reason, they're looking at it going, well, that's weird as a bright star. And these men come following the star. And they can't even see through the scriptures themselves, even though they're very plain, that the scriptures are pointing to the fact that Jesus would be born. But now God is speaking he spoke through the star, now he's speaking through the prophets, through the scriptures. The Magi were seeking the king, Herod was opposing the king, and the Jewish priests were ignoring the king. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. So he gets a piece of information from the priest, and then he calls the wise men back, the Magi, and he says, so when again did this star appear? You know, he's trying to figure out, okay, so he must have been born around the time the star appeared. And so he's beginning to figure this out. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you found him, bring back word to me that this whole thing puzzles me because if it's only five or six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, Bethlehem's a tiny little poor town. Why couldn't he just send a couple of guys on some horses over there to find out, okay, where's the baby who was born recently? a male baby, 
the one who the scriptures say, these scriptures say he's supposed to be the king of the Jews. But instead he said, okay, I'll let you guys figure it out. Then you guys, when you found him, you know, because you have some knowledge here, you'll, you'll figure this out. Then you can come back and tell me because, you know, I really want to worship him also. And we know that he's being so facetious here. He's lying. He doesn't want to worship the baby. He wants to kill the baby. And so when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Something unique, something amazing happened as God again directed them by the star. And if you've ever been out at night and you've tried to look at the sun and, excuse me, the the moon and the stars, and you look at the stars in the sky and you think, okay, I need to use those stars to navigate. If If you were trained back in the day, Uh, long before any technology existed, and you had a sextant, which was the little item you used to sort of triangulate your position off of the stars, you might be able to figure it out. But how would that happen? God divinely made this star shine a beam of light on the town of Bethlehem. And I just wonder if, if God didn't do it this way. I don't know. This is speculation. But it's like a floodlight shining on the city of Bethlehem. And as they get closer, the beam narrows till it becomes a pinpoint beam and it's pointing to this house. And, and God led them by the light of this star to the place where the young child was. And it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They knew that God was leading them. They knew that God was speaking to them. So in this third instance now, we see that they are directed by the light of the star. Verse 11, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now we sing a hymn, usually around Christmas, it's called We Three Kings of Orient Are. And yet, I would ask you, where in this passage have we seen that there were three kings? This is a good day to burst your bubble on a few things. There weren't three kings uh, specifically. There were probably more. The scriptures never say there were three. We just reason that there were three because there were three gifts given, gold and frankincense and myrrh. In fact, there's a church tradition that actually has these three kings named but that's just the church tradition and that is not in the scriptures and it's nowhere credible that we know of. So when these wise men, when these magi came into the house, they fell down and worshiped a baby. How crazy is that? How crazy is that to fall down and worship a baby? Because they knew something had told them, whether it was the scriptures or whether it was just the the appearance of the star itself, something told them, and we know it was the Lord, that this baby was special. So they came in, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshiped him. I wanna take just a moment and talk about the issue of worship while we're here. Whenever we encounter worship in the scriptures, we ought to take note and just pause and read through it and and say what can we learn about worship through the scriptures you see we tend to define things in our own terms don't we 
We tend to define things in terms of what we do today in our cultural uses and practices of worship. You know, for us, it might be coming into a place, we all face one direction, uh, someone leads us in a few songs, and then we sit down and we're done worshiping. Well, is that the extent of worship? When you read through the Psalms, which are the hymn book of Israel, and you see how the psalmist, whether it be David or Asaph or, or Moses or any of the other writers of the Psalms, and they write Psalms that are directed toward God and they're thanking God and they're worshiping God. You know, worship takes many forms. It can take the form of just in my heart, looking toward heaven and blessing the name of God and thanking God for his provisions, thanking God for his blessings. So worship can be that. You see, the word worship is a compound word and it means worth-ship. It means to attribute worth and honor and glory to someone or something. You see, we can worship anything, can't we? We can worship a cat, right? We can make up, we can worship an idol. We can, we can worship our cars, right? We can find anything to worship. But the issue is, according to the Ten Commandments, that you shall have no other gods before me, that our worship should uniquely and only and solely be placed on the Lord. How do we do that? Well, we look at the examples in Scripture. Every time we see someone bowing down and worshiping the Lord, what are they doing? Why are they doing it? What's motivated them? What's, what's moved them to do these things? I, I love these passages that are so clear like this one or like Revelation chapters 4 and 5 where, where we have that glimpse into heaven that there at the throne of God, the living creatures and the elders, they fall down, they worship the Lord and they cast their crowns on the glassy sea, the floor that is around the throne of God. And we have such a clear and an intense picture. But we also have all of the different places where it just says, and they worshiped and they bowed down and they gave thanks and they honored God. You see, worship can be musical. Worship can be just me on my knees in my prayer closet. Worship can be me with my Bible, just reading it and just letting God speak to me. Acts of worship are acts where we enthrone God on the uh, on the, the throne of our heart. We, we make him important. We make him big. We say, Lord, you're the most important person to me. I want to be about you. I want to learn from you. I want to follow you. And here we have this example today, not so much of people who wanted to find Jesus, but God spoke to them and said, Jesus is here. Here's a star. Here's the scriptures. And we're, and we're going to find out in a moment. Here's some dreams. God saying specifically, initiating himself. Here's Jesus. You see, God wants us to be saved. God wants us to find Jesus. God is pointing us to Jesus. How much more could he do? When people start asking those questions, well, if God's a cruel God, and we'll get to it in a moment, when, when Herod, in his fit of rage, massacres all the babies in that region under two years of age, and we ask those questions, why did God, if he's a good God, allow these things to happen? Listen, God is just, God, God is holy. His ways are beyond our finding out. And because sin entered the world and, and Satan deceived man and woman and, and sin entered the world, sin has started this inevitable decay in the heart and in the life of mankind. We just studied through the book of Genesis, the first 1,500 or so years of history. And as we study that, we saw this decay in the life of man. You know, in the beginning, men were living 800, 900 years. By the time we get to the end of Genesis, uh, men are living 120, 130 years. 
We see this decay that sin has entered the world. And now we, we live in a time where if somebody makes it to 100, man, that's incredible. Moses wrote in Psalm 90, uh, 70 years and if by due to strength, 80. And when we start hitting these milestones in our lives, you know, 60, 70, 80, we're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die any day. Because sin has entered the world. And there is this de deterioration, but God points us to Jesus. Jesus is our only hope. So they came into the house, they fell down, they worshiped him. And they brought in these, these three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold, the gift of a king, the gift of royalty. Frankincense, just offering and, and worship. And myrrh, a burial spice. Speaking of Jesus' birth and life and his death. So here these men came in, these wise men, however many there were. They fall down before Jesus. They worship him right there, which must have been a bizarre thing as Joseph and Mary stood there and went, what is going on with this? But at the same time, they knew what the Lord had told them as the Lord informed them before Jesus was born of who he would be, that he would be the son of God. Their gifts as they came were thoughtful. Their gifts were meaningful. But their gifts also cost them something. These things, these gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, these were not inexpensive gifts. The gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh could have easily been used as a dowry in, in a wedding. And usually when a dowry was given, it could have been up to a whole year's salary. So this could have been something in the neighborhood of two to three years worth of salary just in terms of monetary value as these gifts were given at the feet of Jesus. You see, giving also is an act of worship, isn't it? Verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So number four, God directed them by a dream. He appeared to these men. It doesn't say he appeared to, to, warn, uh, to one of them. It says he, he warned all of them. So we don't really know how it was carried out, but God spoke in such a clear and an undeniable way through this dream to these men that they all woke up and said, okay, obviously we're not going back to Herod, because we know, because the Lord told us, he's not looking to worship Jesus. He's using, he wants to do him harm. And so we have to go another way and avoid Herod. Now, when they had departed in verse uh, 13, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So now we had the Lord speaking to the wise men in a dream. Now the Lord choosing to speak again to Joseph in a dream. Remember in Luke's account, that the Lord had to speak to Joseph in a dream to get his attention to say, okay, Joseph, it's okay. You don't need to divorce Mary, who is your betrothed wife. She didn't do anything wrong. The child she's carrying is by the Holy Spirit. You were to continue through and to take her as your wife. Go ahead and do it now and marry her. And, and then I'm gonna give you direction on how things are supposed to be carried out. So God spoke to him initially in a dream. And in fact, he did it a couple of times now. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream again here, directing him, leading him, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother. Flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So now Joseph being divinely warned, I need you to get up and take action immediately. So when he arose in verse 14, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. 
you get the sense that what happened here is that he had this dream and he was awakened by it because it was so severe and intense. And let's just say for the sake of discussion at 2 a.m. He, he gets woken up by this dream. He immediately gets up because he's so impressed that the Lord spoke to him that he says, hey, get up, we got to leave right now. It's sort of like a fire drill. House is on fire, we got to get out of here. And so they left immediately. So they went and they departed for Egypt. In verse 15, and they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. That's recorded for us in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. So you see, God has so many things going on, doesn't he? When it says in the book of Revelation that he is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, we, don't, we read that and it sounds poetic to us and it's cool. But God had bigger things in, in, in mind, didn't he? God, as he's directing these people in the various means, through the light of a star, through the, the illumination of a dream and speaking to their hearts, God is like moving the pieces of puzzle around on a divine chessboard, isn't he? So that prophecies can be fulfilled, so that people can be in the right place at the right time for this to happen or for that to occur. And so God is not only delivering Joseph and Mary and Jesus from the hand of Herod by moving them down to Egypt for a time, for a period, but also to put them down there so that in the future when it's ready for, when they're ready to come back, when God is ready to say, okay, now he's dead, you can come back. It's so that that this prophecy, this ancient prophecy in the book of Hosea can be fulfilled. See, God has so much more going on. Sometimes you and I think, man, I'm just so overwhelmed, right? Because of the things going on in my life. What about God? I mean, he's got every, he's got all this stuff going on, but see, he's got it going on globally, doesn't he? He's got it going on through all ages, through all time. You and I just have to deal with What's going to happen this week when I go back to work? Oh my gosh, I've got a thousand emails I've got to read or whatever it is. And God has everything going on. So the Lord moved them down there until the time that Herod was passed away. And then so that when he brought them back, Hosea 11.1 1 could be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, an interesting thing, when we go back and we read these prophetic declarations in the Old Testament in their context, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I encourage you to do it. Look these up. Most of your Bibles might have a cross-reference in them and tell you, okay, this is you know, Hosea 11.1. 1. You go back and you read it in its context, and it's like, huh, how did they figure out that that was referring to this? Because so often when you go read it, it's like, now I can see it looking back because the New Testament is shining the light on the Old Testament so that I can see it. But as an Old Testament reader, as I read through it and I go, okay, this thing about the branch, whatever. And you keep reading, but you're like, no, no, that's speaking of Jesus. That's speaking of the branch of David. Those are speaking of the Messiah. And so now here in the New Testament era, as Jesus is coming into the world, God is now saying, click, check. Every time a scripture is being fulfilled. These things are happening so that my son would fulfill prophetic scripture, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its districts 
from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So again, we see Herod here. We see him sort of true to form, true to his character. He was an angry man. And we, one of the things we know about angry, about angry people or about anger in general is that anger is an evidence of pride. Anger is evidence of pride. Now, if any of you know angry people, I'm not talking about the occasional thing where, you know, we all get angry about something, I drop something on my foot or whatever, but, you know, people who are angry have this sort of edge, right? They have this undercurrent of anger in their lives. Anger is an evidence of pride. And what is pride evidence of? Self-focus, self-centeredness, isn't it? Herod was certainly that kind of man. Angry people are prideful people. And so he was so angry that these guys deceived him. They beat him at his own game that he sent forth and he said, okay, at this point, let's just take a a wide pass here and all of the male children who are under two years of age, let's just wipe them out. Now notice it said here in Bethlehem and its districts, just right around the city of Bethlehem from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So he went back to when they said, this is when the star appeared and drew his little timeline. So we know that this must have been somewhere between 18 and 24 months at this point when this happened, because he's now saying, I'm not going to miss it. And I'm going to have them all murdered. All of them will be eradicated. Now, nobody knows for sure how many children were killed. One, one baby being murdered is one too many, obviously. But some have estimated that in that day, just to the way, due to the way population was progressing, that this was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or so babies. We tend to think of it being a much larger number. I don't know if it was, but that's what someone has estimated, who's uh, far more educated than I. Nonetheless, this is a horrendous thing, that these babies were terminated because of this man's prideful ego and he was concerned that someone might grow up to take his throne. In verse 17, then it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Now, this is a prophecy you look at and you say, Lord, don't fulfill that one. Jeremiah 31, 15, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The, this prophecy that Jeremiah gave in Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen was written about 600 years before Jesus was born. And in this situation here, as this prophecy is being fulfilled, I'm sure this is a prophecy that gave God no joy, no pleasure, but he did say it was going to happen. You see, we have to deal with God's foreknowledge. And God has what he allows and what he plans to happen. Did God will it that these children should die? I would say absolutely not. Did God allow it by his divine decree? He did. How do we make sense of that? I don't know. I just know that God did. He allowed it to happen. But I would say it's due to the effect and the penalty of sin. Now, when Herod was dead, finally, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So here we have again, the Lord speaking to Joseph. And this time again, using a dream. 
And he said to Joseph, Arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the young child's life are dead. So he arose and he took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now, why would he be afraid? Because it's Herod's son. Uh, one writer said that it was safer to be a pig in Herod's uh, pig pen than to be a son in his house. That's how crazy and how maniacal he was. And so for this man, Archelaus, the son of Herod, to have survived and become um, a ruler, you know, that Rome allowed him to become a ruler in that time, that he certainly would be afraid because it certainly Archelaus would have known of the madness and the thinking of uh, Herod toward this baby, toward Jesus. So when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And once again, being warned by God in a dream, number seven, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. So he came back, and it's sort of like the star the first time. The star led the wise men to Jerusalem, but then led them on to Bethlehem. And here, uh, the Lord spoke to Joseph in a dream, got him moving, moved him back to Israel. But as he got to Israel, he didn't know where to go. And as he came in and he heard Archelaus is reigning over the Judea, the, the southern region, he said, go on up to the north, to Galilee, to the city of Nazareth, and settle there. And so, as he moved along, verse 23, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene once again. God saying, no, no, I don't want you to go here. I don't want you to go there. Can't do Bethlehem. That's in the region of Judea. I want you to go on up north, settle in Nazareth. And oh, by the way, there's another prophecy to be fulfilled. Now it's interesting in this prophecy where it says, which was spoken by the prophets, plural, he shall be called a Nazarene. Listen to this. We will not find any specific prophecy that called Jesus a Nazarene. The term Nazarene was one of reproach. John 1.46, can, can there be any good that comes out of Nazareth? In many Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah's lowly life of rejection is mentioned, and this may be what Matthew had in mind. And some of the other Old Testament passages, I won't enumerate those for you. The term Nazarene was applied to both Jesus and his followers, and he was often called Jesus of Nazareth. But perhaps Matthew, led by the Spirit, saw a spiritual connection between the name Nazarene and the Hebrew word Netzer, which means a branch or a shoot. And then there are several passages, Isaiah 4, Isaiah 11, where it says that Jesus would be the branch, the shoot of David. He says this in Jeremiah, he says this in Zechariah. And so many believe that those passages refer to Jesus being a Nazarene, a Netzer, or a branch, or a shoot. So you will not find a specific reference to a place that says Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So as we've come through this gospel this morning, chapter 2, and we've looked at the birth of Jesus, I want to just remind you again, that in these seven instances where the Lord used these incredible means to speak to these different groups of people, to lead them and to guide them, what do we learn from that? Well, as we observe it, as we look at it, 
were any of these people seeking to know the will of the Lord in that moment, in that situation? And the answer is no. God revealed it to them. So once again, we see the principle in Scripture that God is the initiator, man is the responder. So you can rest assured that when you have someone like you or I who is saying, Lord, what are your plans for my life? Or what decisions should I make? I have this decision in front of me. What should I do? How should I do it? Where should I go? When should I go? I believe the Lord, if we are seeking him, that he will reveal his truth to us, that he will reveal to us the way in which we should walk. Certainly in the case of using the light of a star or using dreams, these are methods that God does use. I think the primary way God uses to direct us today is through his word. He's given us his completed holy scriptures, all of the books of the Bible. This is why we should be reading the Bible, to allow God to speak to us and to minister to us. I've always been impressed by, and this is why it's good to read um, Christian biographies and missionary biographies, George Mueller, who was ministering, you know, I think it was in the 1800s, uh, back in this, the city of London, the great city of London, and the Lord had directed him to become uh, sort of a guy who managed um, orphanages. And so he started an orphanage, and then all these kids came in, and then he just he kept starting these orphanages. But these things were sort of the off-scouring of society, so the only way these orphanages could be provided for would be if God provided, and this was one of the questions that George Mueller wrestled with, and he was like, Lord, how's this going to happen? You know, in our day, we would look at it and say, okay, we need to go get some venture capitalists. We need to get some, you know, start a, a GoFundMe page or something like that and see if people will buy into the cause and give us some money. In those days, what do you have? You have the Lord and that's it. And so he's reading one day, and I believe it was in Psalm 66, and he's reading the scriptures. And he comes to this verse that says, open wide thy mouth and I will fill it. And in that moment, he was stopped dead in his tracks and he was like, that was the word of the Lord to me in that moment that I needed to hear. That gave me the confidence that in faith I should step forward and do what God was telling me to do. And he said from that moment forward, as you read his biography, we never lacked. God always provided what we needed exactly when we needed it. And he recounts all these examples of we get up in the morning, we set the table for breakfast, we literally have nothing. We sit down and we pray and we're like, Lord, okay. And as they finish praying and they say amen, a knock comes at the door and they go to the door. The bread man broke down outside and he says, the bread's gonna go bad. Can I, can I, Mr. Mueller, would you like to take all this bread? Another day, the milk truck, the milk wagon breaks down out front. And God says, here, I'm providing for you. Now, if we are trusting God and if we are seeking God and if God moves in these ways, and if God speaks in these ways to people, will he not speak to us? Doesn't it say in Matthew 6, I can't wait to get there, you know, aren't you more valuable than sparrows? Doesn't, bird, doesn't God take care of the birds of the air and the, the beasts of the field and he takes care of the flowers? How much more valuable are you to him than these things? And yet God takes care of those things. They lack for nothing. Will not God also take care of you? the leading of God. God protected his son. God led his parents. God brought the worshipers. God brought the gifts. Here's another way to think of it. As they brought those gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, it's highly likely that those gifts funded the trip 
that they needed to take at that moment down to Egypt and then back from Egypt when it was time. You see, God gave them what they needed when they needed it. The leading of God as we, I, I can think that, you know, I can't plan this stuff out, okay? I, I can't sit down with a calendar and go, man, I'm going to speak on the leading of God on the first Sunday of the new year. I can't figure that out. God led us here. I was planning to do Matthew 2 on Christmas Eve. And if you were here on Christmas Eve, I shared with you, I felt like God directed my heart to go a different direction. We, we talked about the peace of God. And here we are today talking about the leading of God. How much more do we as his church, as believers, need the leading of God in these days? Amen. So let's look to the Lord. If God is willing to go to great lengths to lead people as he did here, will he not lead us in the days that lie ahead for us? And I submit to you, he will. And I'm ready to trust him. Are you ready to trust him for what he has for us as we venture into the new year? Lord, thank you. We bless you this morning. We're so grateful for your faithfulness to us and that you are leading us and that you will lead us. And Lord, we reach out to you right now in faith and we just say, Lord, and just cry out to God for whatever the things are on your heart this morning, the decisions, the things. And Lord, would you speak to us? Would you lead us in these things? Lord, help us to let go of what we want and just say, Lord, what do you want? And Lord, I want to stop trying to direct you into my will and ask you to direct me into your will. Lord, would you speak to me? Would you speak to us as clearly as you spoke to these people? And would you minister to us your love and your grace and your mercy? For some of us this morning, Lord, perhaps we don't understand this because we've never believed in Jesus or trusted him. And may this morning be for us that first step, which is to believe in the gospel that you sent your only begotten son, that we might believe in him and we might have eternal life. And Lord, may we place our faith and our hope and our trust in him this morning, if we've never done that. And just say, Jesus, come into my life and lead me. And Lord, for those of us who are your sons and your daughters, thank you. We bless you and we worship you. And Lord, we ask you to lead us. Lead us boldly into the days that are ahead. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. May we exalt your name. May we glorify you in this new year. May we lay down our pride and our anger and whatever else binds and constrains us, Lord, the sin which so easily entangles us. And may we run with endurance the race that you've set before us. In Jesus' name, amen.